Chapter Eleven, Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Eleven, Part Two. It was strange enough that Anthony Chuzzlewit, himself so old a man, should take a pleasure in these jibings of his estimable son at the expense of the poor shadow at their table, but he did unquestionably, though not so much to do him justice with reference to their ancient clerk as in exultation at the sharpness of Jonas. For the same reason that young man's coarse allusions even to himself filled him with a stealthy glee, causing him to rub his hands and chuckle covertly, as if he said in his sleeve, I taught him, I trained him, this is the heir of my bringing up, sly, cunning, and covetous. He'll not squander my money. I worked for this, I hoped for this. It has been the great end and aim of my life. What a noble end and aim it was to contemplate in the attainment, truly. But there be some who manufacture idols after the fashion of themselves, and fail to worship them when they are made, charging their deformity on outraged nature. Anthony was better than these, at any rate. Chuffy boggled over his plate so long that Mr. Jonas, losing patience, took it from him at last with his own hands, and requested his father to signify to that venerable person that he had better peg away at his bread, which Anthony did. "'Aye, aye,' cried the old man, brightening up as before, when this was communicated to him in the same voice. "'Quite right, quite right.' "'He's your own son, Mr. Chuzzlewit. Bless him for a sharp lad. Bless him, bless him.' Mr. Jonas considered this so particularly childish, perhaps with some reason, that he only laughed the more, and told his cousins that he was afraid one of these fine days Chuffy would be the death of him. The cloth was then removed, and the bottle of wine set upon the table, from which Mr. Jonas filled the young ladies' glasses, calling on them not to spare it, as they might be certain there was plenty more where that came from. But he added with some haste after this sally that it was only his joke, and they wouldn't suppose him to be in earnest, he was sure. "'I shall drink,' said Anthony, to Pecksniff. "'Your father, my dears, a clever man, Pecksniff, a wary man, a hypocrite, though, eh? A hypocrite, girls, eh? Ha, ha, ha! Well, so he is. Now among friends he is.' I don't think the worse of him for that, unless it is that he overdoes it. You may overdo anything, my darlings. You may overdo even hypocrisy, asked Jonas. You can't overdo taking care of yourself, observed that hopeful gentleman with his mouth full. Do you hear that, my dears? cried Anthony, quite enraptured. Wisdom, wisdom, a good exception, Jonas. No, it's not easy to overdo that. Except, whispered Mr. Jonas to his favorite cousin, "'except when one lives too long. "'Ha, ha! Tell the other one that, I say.' "'Good gracious me,' said Cherry, in a petulant manner. "'You can tell her yourself, if you wish, can't you?' "'She seems to make such game of one,' replied Mr. Jonas. "'Then why need you trouble yourself about her?' said Charity. "'I am sure she doesn't trouble herself much about you.' "'Don't she, though?' asked Jonas. "'Good gracious me, need I tell you that she don't?' returned the young lady.' Mr. Jonas made no verbal rejoinder, but he glanced at Mercy with an odd expression in his face, and said that wouldn't break his heart. She might depend upon it. 
Then he looked on Charity with even greater favour than before, and besought her, as his polite manner was, to come a little closer. "'There's another thing that's not easily overdone, father,' remarked Jonas, after a short silence. "'What's that?' asked the father, grinning already in anticipation. "'A bargain,' said the son. "'Here's the rule for bargains. "'Do other men, for they would do you. "'That's the true business precept. "'All others are counterfeits.' "'The delighted father applauded this sentiment to the echo, "'and was so much tickled by it "'that he was at the pains of imparting the same to his ancient clerk, "'who rubbed his hands, nodded his palsied head, "'winked his watery eyes, and cried in his whistling tones, "'Good, good, your own son, Mr. Chuzzlewit.' with every feeble demonstration of delight that he was capable of making. But this old man's enthusiasm had the redeeming quality of being felt in sympathy with the only creature to whom he was linked by ties of long association, and by his present helplessness. And if there had been anybody there who cared to think about it, some dregs of a better nature, unawakened, might perhaps have been descried through that very medium, melancholy though it was, yet lingering at the bottom of the worn-out cask called Chuffy. As matters stood, nobody thought or said anything upon the subject. So Chuffy fell back into a dark corner on one side of the fireplace, where he always spent his evenings, and was neither seen nor heard again that night, save once, when a cup of tea was given him, in which he was seen to soak his bread mechanically. There was no reason to suppose that he went to sleep at these seasons, or that he heard, or saw, or felt, or thought. He remained, as it were, frozen up, if any term expressive of such a vigorous process can be applied to him, until he was again thawed for the moment by a word or touch from Anthony. Miss Charity made tea by desire of Mr. Jonas, and felt and looked so like the lady of the house that she was in the prettiest confusion imaginable, the more so from Mr. Jonas sitting close beside her, and whispering a variety of admiring expressions in her ear. Miss Mercy, for her part, felt the entertainment of the evening to be so distinctly and exclusively theirs, that she silently deplored the commercial gentleman, at that moment, no doubt, wearying for her return, and yawned over yesterday's newspaper. As to Anthony, he went to sleep outright, so Jonas and Cherry had a clear stage to themselves as long as they chose to keep possession of it. When the tea-tray was taken away, as it was at last, Mr. Jonas produced a dirty pack of cards, and entertained the sisters with divers small feats of dexterity, whereof the main purpose of every one was that you were to decoy somebody into laying a wager with you that you couldn't do it, and were then immediately to win and pocket his money. Mr. Jonas informed them that these accomplishments were in high vogue in the most intellectual circles, and that large amounts were constantly changing hands on such hazards. And it may be remarked that he fully believed this, for there is a simplicity of cunning no less than a simplicity of innocence, and in all matters where a lively faith in knavery and meanness was required as the groundwork of belief, Mr. Jonas was one of the most credulous of men. His ignorance, which was stupendous, may be taken into account, if the reader pleases, separately. This fine young man had all the inclination to be a profligate of the first water, and only lacked the one good trait in the common catalogue of debauched vices, open-handedness, 
to be a notable vagabond. But there his griping and penurious habits stepped in. And as one poison will sometimes neutralize another, when wholesome remedies would not avail, so he was restrained by a bad passion from quaffing his full measure of evil, when virtue might have sought to hold him back in vain. By the time he had unfolded all the peddling schemes he knew upon the cards, it was growing late in the evening, and Mr. Pecksniff not making his appearance, the young ladies expressed a wish to return home. But this Mr. Jonas, in his gallantry, would by no means allow, until they had partaken of some bread and cheese and porter, and even then he was excessively unwilling to allow them to depart, often beseeching Miss Charity to come a little closer, or to stop a little longer, and preferring many other complimentary petitions of that nature in his own hospitable and earnest way. When all his efforts to detain them were fruitless, he put on his hat and greatcoat preparatory to escorting them to Todgers's, remarking that he knew they would rather walk thither than ride, and that for his part he was quite of their opinion. "'Good night,' said Anthony. "'Good night. Remember me to—' <laughs> "'To Pecksniff. Take care of your cousin, my dears. Beware of Jonas. He's a dangerous fellow. Don't quarrel for him, in any case.' "'Oh, the creature!' cried Mercy. "'The idea of quarrelling for him. You may take him, Cherry, my love, all to yourself. I make you a present of my share.' "'What, I'm a sour grape, am I, cousin?' said Jonas. Miss Charity was more entertained by this repartee than one would have supposed likely, considering its advanced age and simple character, but in her sisterly affection she took Mr. Jonas to task for leaning so very hard upon a broken reed, and said that he must not be so cruel to poor Mary any more, or she, Charity, would positively be obliged to hate him. Mercy, who really had her share of good humour, only retorted with a laugh, and they walked home in consequence without any angry passages of words upon the way. Mr. Jonas, being in the middle, and having a cousin on each arm, sometimes squeezed the wrong one, so tightly, too, as to cause her not a little inconvenience. But as he talked to Charity in whispers the whole time, and paid her great attention, no doubt this was an accidental circumstance." When they arrived at Todgers's, and the door was opened, Mercy broke hastily from them and ran upstairs. But Charity and Jonas lingered on the steps, talking together, for more than five minutes. So, as Mrs. Todgers observed next morning, to a third party, it was pretty clear what was going on there. And she was glad of it, for it really was high time that Miss Pecksniff thought of settling. And now the day was coming on when that bright vision which had burst on Todgers's so suddenly and made a sunshine in the shady breast of Jenkins was to be seen no more, when it was to be packed like a brown paper parcel or a fish basket or an oyster barrel or a fat gentleman or any other dull reality of life in a stage-coach and carried down into the country. "'Never, my dear Miss Pecksniffs,' said Mrs. Todgers, when they retired to rest on the last night of their stay, "'Never have I seen an establishment so perfectly broken-hearted as mine is at this present moment of time. "'I don't believe the gentlemen will be the gentlemen they were, or anything like it. "'No, not for weeks to come. "'You have a great deal to answer for, both of you.' "'They modestly disclaimed any willful agency in this disastrous state of things, and regretted it very much. "'Your pious pa, too,' said Mrs. Todgers, "'there's a loss.' 
"'My dear Miss Pecksniff, your pa is a perfect missionary of peace and love.' Entertaining an uncertainty as to the particular kind of love supposed to be comprised in Mr. Pecksniff's mission, the young ladies received the compliment rather coldly. "'If I dared,' said Mrs. Todgers, perceiving this, "'to violate a confidence which has been reposed in me, "'and to tell you why I must beg of you "'to leave the little door between your room and mine open to-night, "'I think you would be interested. "'But I mustn't do it, for I promised Mr. Jenkins faithfully "'that I would be as silent as the tomb.' "'Dear Mrs. Todgers, what can you mean?' "'Why, then, my sweet Miss Pecksniffs,' said the lady of the house, "'my own loves, if you will allow me the privilege of taking that freedom "'on the eve of our separation, Mr. Jenkins and the gentlemen "'have made up a little musical party among themselves, "'and do intend, in the dead of this night, "'to perform a serenade upon the stairs outside the door. "'I could have wished, I own,' said Mrs. Todgers, "'with her usual foresight,' "'that it had been fixed to take place an hour or two earlier, "'because when gentlemen sit up late they drink, "'and when they drink they're not so musical, perhaps, as when they don't. "'But this is the arrangement, "'and I know you will be gratified, my dear Miss Pecksniffs, "'by such a mark of their attention.' "'The young ladies were at first so much excited by the news "'that they vowed they couldn't think of going to bed "'until the serenade was over. "'But half an hour of cool waiting so altered their opinion "'that they not only went to bed, but fell asleep, and were, moreover, not ecstatically charmed to be awakened some time afterwards by certain dulcet strains breaking in upon the silent watches of the night. It was very affecting, very. Nothing more dismal could have been desired by the most fastidious taste. The gentleman of a vocal turn was head-mute or chief mourner. Jenkins took the bass, and the rest took anything they could get. The youngest gentleman blew his melancholy into a flute. He didn't blow much out of it, that was all the better. If the two Miss Pecksniffs and Mrs. Todgers had perished by spontaneous combustion, and the serenade had been in honour of their ashes, it would have been impossible to surpass the unutterable despair expressed in that one chorus, Go where glory waits thee. It was a requiem, a dirge, a moan, a howl, a wail, a lament, an abstract of everything that is sorrowful and hideous in sound. The flute of the youngest gentleman was wild and fitful. It came and went in gusts like the wind. For a long time together he seemed to have left off, and when it was quite settled by Mrs. Todgers and the young ladies, that overcome by his feelings he had retired in tears, he unexpectedly turned up again at the very top of the tune, gasping for breath. He was a tremendous performer. There was no knowing where to have him, and exactly when you thought he was doing nothing at all, then was he doing the very thing that ought to astonish you most. There were several of these concerted pieces, perhaps two or three too many, though that, as Mrs. Todgers said, was a fault on the right side. But even then, even at that solemn moment when the thrilling sounds may be presumed to have penetrated into the very depths of his nature, if he had any depths, Jenkins couldn't leave the youngest gentleman alone. He asked him distinctly, before the second song began, as a personal favour too, mark the villain in that, not to play. Yes, he said so, not to play. The breathing of the youngest gentleman was heard through the keyhole of the door. He didn't play. What vent was a flute for the passion swelling up within his breast? A trombone would have been a world too mild. The serenade approached its close. Its crowning interest was at hand. 
the gentleman of a literary turn had written a song on the departure of the ladies and adapted it to an old tune they all joined except the youngest gentleman in company who for the reasons aforesaid maintained a fearful silence the song which was of a classical nature invoked the oracle of apollo and demanded to know what would become of todgers's when charity and mercy were banished from its walls the oracle delivered no opinion particularly worth remembering according to the not infrequent practice of oracles from the earliest ages down to the present time in the absence of enlightenment on that subject the strain deserted it and went on to show that the miss pecksniffs were nearly related to rural britannia and that if great britain hadn't been an island there could have been no miss pecksniffs and being now on a nautical tack it closed with this verse all hail to the vessel of pecksniff the sire and favouring breezes to fan while tritons flock round it and proudly admire the architect artist and man as they presented this beautiful picture to the imagination the gentlemen gradually withdrew to bed to give the music the effect of distance and so it died away and todgers's was left to its repose mr bailey reserved his vocal offering until the morning when he put his head into the room as the young ladies were kneeling before their trunks packing up and treated them to an imitation of the voice of a young dog in trying circumstances when that animal is supposed by persons of a lively fancy to relieve his feelings by calling for pen and ink well young ladies said the youth so you're a-going home are you worse luck yes bailey we're going home returned mercy ain't you a-going to leave none of em a lock of your hair inquired the youth it's real ain't it they laughed at this and told him of course it was oh is it of course though said bailey i know better than that hers aunt why i see it hanging up once on that nail by the winder besides i have gone behind her at dinner-time and pulled it and she never knowed i say young ladies i'm a-going to leave i ain't a-going to stand being called names by her no longer miss mercy inquired what his plans for the future might be in reply to whom mr bailey intimated that he thought of going either into top boots or into the army into the army cried the young ladies with a laugh ah said bailey why not there's a many drummers in the tower i'm acquainted with em don't their country set a valley on em mind you not at all you'll be shot i see observed mercy well cried mr bailey what if i am there's something gamey in it young ladies ain't there i'd sooner be hit with a cannon-ball than a rolling-pin and she's always a-catching up something of that sort and throwing it at me when the gentleman's appetites is good what said mr bailey stung by the recollection of his wrongs what if they do consume the provisions it ain't my fault is it surely no one says it is said mercy don't they though retorted the youth no yes ah oh no one mayn't say it is but some one knows it is but i ain't a-going to have every rise in prices visited on me i ain't a-going to be killed because the markets is dear i won't stop and therefore added mr bailey relenting into a smile whatever you mean to give me you'd better give me all at once because if ever you come back again i shan't be here and as to the other boy he won't deserve nothing i know the young ladies on behalf of mr pecksniff and themselves 
acted on this thoughtful advice, and in consideration of their private friendship, presented Mr. Bailey with a gratuity so liberal that he could hardly do enough to show his gratitude, which found but an imperfect vent during the remainder of the day in divers secret slaps upon his pocket and other such facetious pantomime. Nor was it confined to these ebullitions, for besides crushing a bandbox with a bonnet in it, he seriously damaged Mr. Pecksniff's luggage by ardently hauling it down from the top of the house, and in short evinced by every means in his power a lively sense of the favours he had received from that gentleman and his family. Mr. Pecksniff and Mr. Jenkins came home to dinner arm in arm, for the latter gentleman had made half-holiday on purpose, thus gaining an immense advantage over the youngest gentleman and the rest, whose time, as it perversely chanced, was all bespoke until the evening. The bottle of wine was Mr. Pecksniff's treat, and they were very sociable indeed, though full of lamentations on the necessity of parting. While they were in the midst of their enjoyment, old Anthony and his son were announced, much to the surprise of Mr. Pecksniff, and greatly to the discomfiture of Jenkins. "'Come to say good-bye, you see,' said Anthony, in a low voice to Mr. Pecksniff, as they took their seats apart at the table, while the rest conversed among themselves. "'Where's the use of a division between you and me? We are the two halves of a pair of scissors, when apart, Pecksniff. But together we are something, eh?' "'Unanimity, my good sir,' rejoined Mr. Pecksniff, "'is always delightful.' "'I don't know about that,' said the old man, "'for there are some people I would rather differ from than agree with. "'But you know my opinion of you.' "'Mr. Pecksniff, still having hypocrite in his mind, "'only replied by a motion of his head, "'which was something between an affirmative bow and a negative shake. "'Complimentary,' said Anthony. "'Complimentary upon my word. "'It was an involuntary tribute to your abilities even at the time.' "'and it was not a time to suggest compliments, either. "'But we agreed in the coach, you know, "'that we quite understood each other.' "'Oh, quite,' assented Mr. Pecksniff, "'in a manner which implied that he himself "'was misunderstood most cruelly, but would not complain. "'Anthony glanced at his son as he sat beside Miss Charity, "'and then at Mr. Pecksniff, and then at his son again, "'very many times. "'It happened that Mr. Pecksniff's glances took a similar direction.' but when he became aware of it he first cast down his eyes, and then closed them, as if he were determined that the old man should read nothing there. "'Jonas is a shrewd lad,' said the old man. "'He appears,' rejoined Mr. Pecksniff, in his most candid manner, "'to be very shrewd.' "'And careful,' said the old man. "'And careful I have no doubt,' returned Mr. Pecksniff. "'Look ye,' said Anthony in his ear, "'I think he is sweet upon your daughter.' "'Tot, my good sir,' said Mr. Pecksniff, with his eyes still closed. "'Young people, young people, a kind of cousins, too, no more sweetness than is in that, sir.' "'Why, there is very little sweetness in that, according to our experience,' returned Anthony. "'Isn't there a trifle more here?' "'Impossible to say,' rejoined Mr. Pecksniff. "'Quite impossible. You surprise me.' "'Yes, I know that,' said the old man dryly. "'It may last.' I mean the sweetness, not the surprise, and it may die off. Supposing it should last, perhaps, you having feathered your nest pretty well, and I having done the same, we might have a mutual interest in the matter. Mr. Pecksniff, smiling gently, was about to speak, but Anthony stopped him. 
"'I know what you are going to say. "'It's quite unnecessary. "'You have never thought of this for a moment, "'and in a point so nearly affecting the happiness of your dear child, "'you couldn't, as a tender father, express an opinion, and so forth. "'Yes, quite right, and like you. "'But it seems to me, my dear Pecksniff,' added Antony, "'laying his hand upon his sleeve, "'that if you and I kept up the joke of pretending not to see this, "'one of us might possibly be placed in a position of disadvantage.' "'and as I am very unwilling to be that party myself, "'you will excuse my taking the liberty of putting the matter beyond a doubt thus early, "'and having it distinctly understood, as it is now, that we do see it and do know it. "'Thank you for your attention. "'We are now upon an equal footing which is agreeable to us both, I am sure.' "'He rose as he spoke, and giving Mr. Pecksniff a nod of intelligence, "'moved away from him to where the young people were sitting.' leaving that good man somewhat puzzled and discomfited by such very plain dealing, and not quite free from a sense of having been foiled in the exercise of his familiar weapons. But the night coach had a punctual character, and it was time to join it at the office, which was so near at hand that they had already sent their luggage and arranged to walk. Thither the whole party repaired, therefore, after no more delay than sufficed for the equipment of the Miss Pecksniffs and Mrs. Todgers. They found the coach already at its starting-place, and the horses in. There, too, were a large majority of the commercial gentlemen, including the youngest, who was visibly agitated, and in a state of deep mental dejection. Nothing could equal the distress of Mrs. Todgers in parting from the young ladies, except the strong emotions with which she bade adieu to Mr. Pecksniff. Never, surely, was a pocket-handkerchief taken in and out of a flat reticule so often as Mrs. Todgers's was, as she stood upon the pavement by the coach-door, supported on either side by a commercial gentleman, and by the sight of the coach-lamps caught such brief snatches and glimpses of the good man's face as the constant interposition of Mr. Jenkins allowed. For Jenkins, to the last, the youngest gentleman's rock ahead in life, stood upon the coach-step talking to the ladies. Upon the other step was Mr. Jonas, who maintained that position in right of his cousinship, whereas the youngest gentleman, who had been first upon the ground, was deep in the booking-office among the black and red placards, and the portraits of fast coaches, where he was ignominiously harassed by porters, and had to contend and strive perpetually with heavy baggage. This false position, combined with his nervous excitement, brought about the very consummation and catastrophe of his miseries, for when, in the moment of parting, he aimed a flower, a hothouse flower that had cost money, at the fair hand of mercy, it reached instead the coachman on the box, who thanked him kindly and stuck it in his buttonhole. They were off now, and Todgers's was alone again. The two young ladies, leaning back in their separate corners, resigned themselves to their own regretful thoughts. But Mr. Pecksniff, dismissing all ephemeral considerations of social pleasure and enjoyment, concentrated his meditations on the one great virtuous purpose before him, of casting out that ingrate and deceiver whose presence yet troubled his domestic hearth and was a sacrilege upon the altars of his household gods. End of chapter 11